0: Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Today, we have Lauren Burke to talk about Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker, Elizabeth Keckley, and her incredible life. Elizabeth Keckley's life was fictionalized in Jennifer Chiaverini's novel, Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker. But, she did document her memoir in Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave, and 4 Years in the White House, where we learn the details of her extraordinary life and her relationship with the First Lady. Lauren Burke is a writer and podcaster from Chicago, Illinois, her podcast, Bonnets at Dawn, is about 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers, and she is the author of her story, Rosa Parks, Why She Wrote, and the upcoming picture book, A Stitch in Time, a children's book about the life of Elizabeth Keckley.
1: Welcome, Lauren. Thank you for joining us. Our podcast today is scheduled to be talking about Elizabeth Keckley, who is a Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker. But uh, Lauren you're also a podcaster so I'm going to leave that to talk about at the end because sure. I really love it once our mutual friend got me onto it. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about Elizabeth Keckley first. So Elizabeth Keckley was born Hobbs, last name Hobbs, and she was a slave in Virginia. So tell us a little bit about her early life and her family relationships.
2: Sure. So she was born in 1818 and her mother was an enslaved woman named Agnes. And Agnes worked in the house, and she could sew as well as read and write. And that's that's really important. We'll get back to that in detail, but that's a big thing. Not very often you hear that about slaves, so for sure. and And she did hand down those skills to Elizabeth, which was instrumental in sort of the making of Elizabeth Keckley. So Elizabeth's biological father actually was her enslaver. So that was Colonel. Amistad Burwell, but she didn't realize that until much later in her life. That was actually like yeah. a deathbed confession on her really? mother's part. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, which is in the biography. I mean, it reads so well. It's quite a dramatic moment. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she did actually have this really loving stepfather named George. So, yeah. George Pleasant Hobbs, he was also enslaved and he actually was like at the next plantation over. Okay. And Burwell actually did promise to move George over to his plantation, but he did not keep that promise. And actually, George was separated eventually from the family oh. for good. And it's really, it's really, really sad. He wrote to them like as much as he could. And mm-hmm. actually, the letters between George and Agnes were some of Elizabeth's most like prized possessions growing up. So yeah, it, it was a tough. Tough life. I mean, the Burwells were not great. They're they're pretty terrible. Yeah. When she was four years old, for example, Elizabeth was put in charge of taking care of Burwell's, you know, white daughter, his legitimate daughter, and um, which I have found out just since in some of my research, so common for just children to be put in charge of other children. Yeah. My yeah. daughter is three, I can't imagine. <laughs> like yeah, I a mean four year taking yeah, care of in, a newborn.
1: Yeah. And in our in our research as well, too, and other local slaves here, I've always found that, you know, they're they've put as babysitters and they're babies themselves.
2: Yeah. It's it's terrible. And so one of the formative sort of memories for Elizabeth is actually rocking her techn- her half sister. Yeah to sleep and then rocking the crib a little too hard and Mm -hmm. the baby rolled out. Mm -hmm. And then for this, she was, she was beaten severely. Wow. So very, very tough life. Later on, she was, she kind of worked in the house with her mother. So she helped her mother, you know, so do whatever was needed for the family, but she was passed around to the various Burwell family members. Wow. Wow. So when she was 14, Colonel Burwell sent her to live with his eldest son, Robert, and his wife, Margaret. And she was kind of like, she was on loan, actually. Mm -hmm. Which happened very often for slaves, too. Yeah, it did. Just really, just no agency. You just are, you are a piece of property. Exactly. Sometimes as collateral for a debt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a terrible time. I mean, there was a lot of abuse. There was sexual abuse by a neighbor and friend of the Burwells. And in 1839, she became pregnant with her son, who she named George, actually, after her stepfather. Wow. Okay. And then she was sent back to Virginia. And Colonel Burwell was like, okay, well, I'm going to give Elizabeth, George, and Agnes to my daughter, Anne, and Garland at that point, uh, as a wedding gift. Wow. So, yeah, the three of them then were sent to St. Louis. And this is so much traveling, too, in this day and age for her. It is. It is, yeah. Just all over the place. So what happened to that child, do we know? So, yeah, she actually got to keep George with her. Because, and also, you know, as a male child, they're like, okay, well, this is this is valuable. We, you know, he now works for us <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. So. So yeah, um they all go live with the Garlands and the Garlands had just very little money. So they were like, okay, what we'll do is we'll rent out their words basically Agnes as a day servant to other local families for money. But Elizabeth was very against the idea because her mother was quite elderly and she was just she was just really nervous about what would happen to her. So she proposed an alternate plan and she said, listen, I will work as a seamstress and I will basically support everyone. I'm that good. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she was like, she was super fast. She was very talented and she was able to support the entire household, which I believe was like 17 people. Goodness. Yeah. So she really, really created a name for herself in St. Louis as this extremely Talented seamstress, and then sort of developed that talent, and really from here on out, I probably I'm going to refer to her as like a dressmaker or a fashion designer. Honestly, yeah, yeah. i mean, essentially that's what she was. Yeah. What, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's how she,
1: that's how she became famous is just through trying to save her mother, basically.
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And working as a designer in St. Louis, like she had all of these high end like clientele. So she was able to really like develop her talent. She was really good at like fitting dresses to the form. Mm-hmm. So she Which had all of these the high at the time. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And all of these, you know, high society ladies would love to, you know, come on over to Elizabeth Keckley.
1: Of course, she lived a very tough life that she documented in her memoirs called Behind the Scenes. What do you think compelled her to document her life?
2: I think there were a couple of things. One, and one thing that you see early on in the book is that she actually is combating sort of this myth of the happy slave, right? Because, you know, we have lots of people all over the country, not just in the South, saying, "Well, they're they're happy." Yeah, <laughs> they're they, you know, they like their lives. Look at them; they're smiling, they're having a good yeah, time. yeah. And she really and we intended, treated them well. Yeah, <laughs> like, they're part yeah. of the family, you yeah. know, and I mean, literally, she was part of the family. Yeah, but she makes a point of saying, like, "Hey, I was you know told to to act." you know, put on a smile, to act brave, to be sweet, to be kind, like, if I wasn't smiling and doing my job, mm-hmm. I was going to pay for it. Yeah, my family was going to pay for it. My, my yes. son would pay for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was definitely part of the intention of the book to, to put that out there.
1: Yeah. So how did she how did she get in touch with uh, Mary Todd Lincoln from St. Louis? Like, what what brought her to Washington, D.C.?
2: So it's, it's, Kind of a cool story. So she actually, and it's kind of a long story. So I'm going to condense it. So if there are any (laughs) Keckley super fans out there, like we're condensing it. (laughs) We can only
1: do so much in a
2: podcast. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So she is, you know, rocking it in St. Louis. She's super in demand and she meets a man named James Keckley and he wants to marry her. And she's like, listen, I am enslaved. Any more children I have will be enslaved. Like I cannot put any children in that position. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But it does put this idea in her head of like, I have to get free. I I have to get my son free and I have to get free. So she goes to her enslavers and she's like, how much? And there's a lot of back and forth, you know, versus like, come on, you're supporting this entire family. (laughs) We're not (laughs) going to let you go. Yeah. But eventually they do settle on a price, which is $1,200, which... I think today would be somewhere between 30 and 40,000. Wow. And she's like, okay, that's a lot. And she does try to work overtime and like take extra jobs on the side to raise that 30 or that 1200 and it's not working, but eventually her clients hear that she's trying to do this. And she had formed these really close relationships with her clients And they're like, we're going to lend you the money. Don't worry about it. We'll just go ahead and pay for it. Wow. And so then they lent her the money to get free. And then she stayed in St. Louis and paid them all back. Wow. Once she was free. Yeah. And then she did marry James Keckley. Kind of an interesting side story. She married him. She thought he was free. Then she realized he was not Oh, <laughs> later on. <laughs> he kind of misrepresented that fact. <laughs> there were a lot of issues going on in their marriage, and she actually ends up leaving him behind. So she's like, I'm going to take my son. We're going to go to D.C. essentially at the time, which was where a lot of freed African-Americans went to build a business. Yeah. So yeah, so that's how she did it. And I mean, it took a long time and actually getting to DC took a long time because to live and work in DC, as you know, a black person, you had to pay sort of all these fees and like, get all of these papers and you had to have white patrons and people supporting you and vouching for you. So it takes a minute, but she does get to DC.
1: So it wasn't just about getting her freedom. It was about maintaining it throughout her life. Yes.
2: Yes. Um in her memoir
1: she works for Jefferson Davis' wife. Mm-hmm. How did she meet that family? As a senator of course before
2: Yeah, before yeah. he
1: becomes <laughs> president, a good like president of it.
2: Yeah. I think that's actually one of the most fascinating parts of the memoir. And there is mm-hmm. a chapter dedicated to the Davises. Yeah, And she gets there. She has a lot of high-end clientele and like connections from St. Louis, right? So she gets to DC and people already know her name. Thank goodness. So she is able to meet or to be introduced to Verena Davis pretty quickly. And I'm just like looking at my notes. Cause like. Who did introduce them? Here's the the thing about Elizabeth. She's a great networker.
1: Yeah. this is like. As as most seamstresses were at the time. Mm Because like, it's kind of like, you know, you were the connection for a lot of people.
2: Yeah. I mean, she's like, I feel like she almost doesn't give herself enough credit in the book because she, I mean, First of all, I will say this too. She moves to DC and she's not the only like black seamstress dressmaker in town. Like when she moves there in 1860, there are at least 160 other like African-American seamstresses. Who wow. Many have been sort of like in the same situation. But the thing is that she can read and write. Yeah. And that does set her apart. Also, she's, She's known for being, you know, just, she's very classy. She's beautiful. She's a great networker. People really loved the way that she handled herself in St. Louis. I mean, I feel like a lot of people thought, you know, she could have run off after she received her freedom. And in fact, there were opportunities where even her enslavers were sort of giving her opportunities to kind of just, they were like, well, you could just leave. (laughs) I think they were kind of, like, saying, like, maybe we could turn a blind eye and yeah. at some point. But she didn't. She really was like, no, I'm going to pay everyone back. I'm going to be – I'm going to just – I'm going to make sure all my debts are square. And people really liked the way that she handled that situation.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if she just kind of left, you never know, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could turn around and say,
2: you ran away.
1: Exactly. Therefore we want you back.
2: <laughs> totally. You know? I mean, she didn't completely yeah. trust it. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't blame her if she did, obviously. But yeah, she she wanted to make sure that she was just like really open and honest with everyone. So when she got to DC, people were like, She's amazing. She's very trustworthy. She had all these great connections. So And she's talented. I mean, And she's talented. I mean, that's the thing. And she's fast. And if anyone works in the creative industry, like, you know that if you're fast, if you can turn around a dress, if you can turn around a book, anything, like, people will love working with you. Yeah, she meets Verena and they, like, they hit it off, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And she immediately has her working on just a bunch of things for the family. She's also doing, like, a dressing gown for, Jefferson Davis, like all kinds of different pieces of clothing, not just, you know, not just dresses. And in her biography, she does note that there's all these secret meetings at all hours so this is like the winter of eighteen sixty. so the the winter before the war kicks before off, it's the war yeah yeah and she's like oh everyone's like sort of whispering and gossiping and elizabeth doesn't seem to really know what's going on politically <laughs> she's like i don't know i'm just i'm just trying to start a business yeah i'm just trying to like i'm just sewing she's also hiring other seamstresses she's like building a business you know so she's really, really focused on that. And at one point, Verena comes to her quite panicked and is like, oh, I think you should come back to the South with us. And she's like, oh, are you going to the South? Like, what? I mean, are you going for like, a visit? What's going on? And she's like, no, you should. <laughs> like, we're leaving. <laughs> we're leaving, and leaving. Yeah. We're leaving, leaving. But we really want to take you with us. And she does say that, you know, we think that Jefferson's going to be president, this war is going to kick off, and you should come with us, like, we will protect you, we'll be in a really good position to protect you if the war does break out. And they're very certain that the South will win, and that the North will be a very dangerous place for African Americans. And Elizabeth's like, I mean, <laughs> I just did all this work I to become I free. Uh, she does actually kind of like pause for a minute because she's like well what if war does break out and Mm -hmm. i mean she's really conflicted but then she's like no 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 no. this is actually if war breaks out like this is the side i want to be on so exactly so she sticks around dc yeah she kind of lets them leave but in her biography she says something kind of funny like i kind of like gave them a half-hearted like i guess maybe i'll see you again bye i'll see you yeah, I'm sure we'll meet again. <laughs> I'm sure we'll meet again. Verena <laughs> goes give her like some great references. Mm-hmm. I believe she gives her a tip off to this woman named Mrs. McLean, who's like the daughter of a general. And this gal comes to Elizabeth, who's at this point very busy, and says, I'm I'm in desperate need of a dress. Can you make me a dress like right now? And Elizabeth says, Absolutely not. And Mrs. McLean says, okay, well, if you make me this dress, I will, like, get you in with Mary Todd Lincoln. So, please, please, please. And Elizabeth Keckley was like, all right, fine. I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) I kind of like that story because, you know, when the book came out and there was a huge amount of backlash against Elizabeth Keckley and a lot of people called her an operator and, you know, that she was – scheming woman and she like really tried to get in there with you know with Mary Todd Lincoln. Like she had planned, you know, to destroy her all along. And I mean, it's not the case. Like Elizabeth Keckley was a businesswoman and any designer would want to dress the first lady, of, of course. Of course, yeah. That's how savvy their,
1: businesswomen operate. <laughs>
2: yeah, for yeah. their business. But really, mm-hmm. I mean it just she saw an opportunity and she she went for it, which mm-hmm. yeah, any businesswoman would do.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the time, if a man had done it, he would be called a savvy businessman. So,
2: exactly. exactly. You know?
1: <laughs> yes. When the memoir came out, I, I read that her, both her and Mary Todd Lincoln kind of got a lot of backlash mm-hmm. about Because, you know, she re- revealed a lot of intimate details about her relationship with Mary Todd Lincoln. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how their relationship developed.
2: Well, Elizabeth got into the White House. She actually... When she went there the first day, there were like three other designers there as well. She was like, "Oh no, it's not just like a job offer. I've got a audition yeah. <laughs> essentially." <laughs> but they did hit it off. And I think that's kind of interesting because Mary Todd had much had a much more youthful style, let's say, which wasn't super popular. Yeah, <laughs> weren't loving all the floral and lace on her. And Elizabeth was very like streamlined, sophisticated, much older. Yeah, but definitely a good look for a president's wife. I'm not sure who quite made the the call, but <laughs> it was like a good rebranding, right, for yeah. Mary Todd Lincoln. I think. Yeah. So these women, I will say, I, I think that the defining moment of their friendship is really, you know, Willie passed. The Lincoln's son passed in 1862. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Keckley's son George actually went off to war in 1861 and he passed. And they do bond. They have this shared grief. Yeah. And they really, really bond quite quickly. And Mary Todd Lincoln does just kind of hand over her secrets to Elizabeth Keckley. You yeah. can think about all these like times when they're just just intimately together in her in her Mm -hmm. bedroom and like she's fitting her for clothing and she's talking about all of her anxieties about money I mean that's the big thing Mary Todd Lincoln was running up a bunch of debts
1: yeah
2: and Abraham Lincoln did not know about them yeah (laughs) and (laughs) Elizabeth Keckley did (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think the money was like a big thing for them and of course the grief and they became very 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 close and after Lincoln was assassinated, well, so Mary Todd Lincoln didn't have a great reputation to begin with in Washington, right? So mm-hmm. that's another thing that they talk about all the time. And they also, of course, talk about that in terms of fashion and how to style her and how to present her and how, you know, who she should talk to and how she should act. Like Elizabeth Keckley becomes more than a dressmaker. She's she's like PR and style. She's like life coach. Yeah, she's really yeah. in there. She feels quite modern, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) She would have a reality show today, I think. Oh, yeah. But this is all experience that she kind of
1: lived through and kind of gained through her connections with other people. So it's not just coming from nowhere.
2: Yes, absolutely. Like she's had these sort of intimate conversations with, I mean, all of the political wives in DC, right? She's very well connected. She really sort of knows the ins and outs of the game at a certain point. She knows what everyone's wearing. <laughs> she knows what everyone's saying in their bedrooms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, you know, they become very very close and after Lincoln's death, you know, Mary Todd Lincoln is in a really bad place. She's deeply in debt. Her reputation is not great. Yeah. Elizabeth Keckley was really trying to help her by, you know, selling dresses that she had made for her, trying to, you know, actually go to various churches, African American churches and raise funds for Mary Todd Lincoln. Um she was doing everything she could and she thought that by writing the bio she would be able to help repair her friend's reputation as well. And I think from a modern perspective reading it It does feel that way because it just does feel like so. It feels very warm, like towards the Lincolns. Like, there's this really interesting little anecdote about Abraham Lincoln and his goats. He's these goats, (laughs) (laughs) and it's very cute and sweet. And I think it does humanize the Lincolns. But of course, I don't have like a Victorian mindset, right? So, yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Back then, it
2: was not received very well. It was not. I mean, it always goes wrong to like, like, just thinking back on William Godwin, husband of Mary Wollstonecraft, he wrote a bio after she died that was trying to do exactly the same thing. And it backfired spectacularly. Oh, yeah. Same thing for Elizabeth Gaskell and Charlotte mm-hmm. Bronte and that bio. So it <laughs> yeah. just, if you are going to write a biography about your friend or your yeah. loved one, it will probably go wrong um, <laughs> as a warning. <laughs> And one of the reasons why it really went wrong was that Elizabeth had handed over some personal letters between her and Mary Todd Lincoln to her editor, and I believe were- she said that it was to verify details that were in mm-hmm. the book, and he put them in the book. And he published them. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. And- so how did that affect their relationship, like – Broken. Yeah. Broke. Completely. No more. It. Like that Yeah. Taylor Swift album like <laughs> <laughs> would have written about it. Yeah. Like badly, yeah. very badly for both of them. Yeah. And it really hurt Elizabeth Keckley's business because of course mm-hmm. all of these DC wives are like, I'm not going to tell her anything. She's gonna publish yeah. it. She's lost the trust of, mm-hmm. of everybody, really. So it tanked yeah. her business and Mary Todd Lincoln never spoke to her again. Yeah, which is really unfortunate, but I'm glad we have the book. Like it's such a good piece of literature. I think it should be required reading, like honestly. It's a deep dive into even the
1: life of the Lincolns in Washington, I think it's I mean, it should be studied in terms of history and from the from like the women's perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so what what happened to Elizabeth Keckley after all that blew over?
2: Oh, so sad. I mean, she went to Wilberforce, uh which is an h like i think the first h b c u if I could be wrong on that, and mm. she taught there for a while until yeah. she had a, a she had a mild stroke, and then she gave up her teaching position and I should also add that, like during all of this from her time, like t- the time she got to d c until she had her stroke, I believe. She was also an activist as well. And she was raising funds for, you know, newly freed slaves to help them get their their life on track and all of that good stuff. And then also for for veterans as well. She was, she was a huge activist. So she taught for a while, had the stroke, and then sadly returned to D.C. and, and died in a home.
1: On her own, was she? On her own, yeah. yeah.
2: And she... Did not have a ton of money at that point. I believe she had her son's like pension from the war.
1: Of course. And, yeah, and
2: he died in the civil war. Mm-hmm. So yeah,
1: it's a, it's a sad end. It is. It is. But I mean, no, it, it made for her documentation gave us so much and not only in terms of history, but a lot, a lot of people are fictionalizing her life story. And yes. there's a lot of different movies. She's, you know, that she is referenced. In, and novels
2: and all that. So, I know they're trying to get like an Elizabeth Keckley biography off the ground, oh. which is great. Of course, she's in, you know, she's featured in some children's books and plays. So, yeah, it's a great it's a great legacy that she's left. She has, yeah. I feel like a, there's a lot of focus on the relationship between her and Mary Todd Lincoln, which I think is fascinating. It is. I have an upcoming book that's coming out in November. And what I sort of did with Elizabeth Keckley is really focused on her sort of, I think the American fashion industry, we've sort of overlooked the contributions of African-American women. Because like I said, she was not the only like seamstress in town in DC. And in fact, there were a few other black seamstresses who were pretty much on her level or making mm-hmm. slightly more, but they didn't leave memoirs and they didn't dress the first lady. Yeah. So um, yeah, her story can be reflected and just like, so many other black fashion designers mm-hmm. Anne colo has like a very actually similar story as well she dressed jackie kennedy mm-hmm. and yeah so i was just like let me talk about like the history of american fashion design via the lens of black women Yeah, exactly and your book
1: is called a stitch in time it is all right and you said it's going to be released in september
2: Now it's going to be released in November.
1: November. Okay. Yeah. Yes, of course. Always a moving (laughs) date. Of course,
2: because it's (laughs) a year of the pandemic.
1: Yes. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So in your podcast, the last few episodes that I've listened to, you do kind of highlight African American women. And you talk about women from 18th and 19th century, including authors and but it's a fascinating podcast. It is called Bonnets at Dawn. It's really, really good. How was the idea for this podcast born?
2: Well, I co host the podcast with my best friend Hannah K Chapman. Mm -hmm. All the way from England all the way from England. (laughs) And I mean, I feel like, especially if you listen to the first season, you can tell that we're just trying on a thing. Really, like, we were both working a lot. I think she was in grad school when we started. And we were just, I was working in publishing at the time. And, you know, you spend like maybe 10% of your time editing when you're an editor, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the rest is like spreadsheets and emails and meetings. and I just we were we were in France at this festival and we were talking about it and I was like, God, I just don't get to like read. Yeah, <laughs> I think that reading is my job, but like
1: I mean, it's the same thing with us librarians. I mean, a lot yeah. of yeah, that's all we do, but really, I mean life really does get in the way. I mean when you're working full time and you have family, it's hard.
2: It's, <laughs> it's really hard. hard. Yeah. And I was just like, I, we just don't get to talk about, like, story and, like, how it makes us feel and, like, history and that sort of thing. And so we had tried to get, like, a book club off the ground with our friends. That did not work. But we were like, okay, let's do the podcast. and. It'll give us like a deadline, essentially, <laughs> to do stuff. <laughs> Hold you accountable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we knew we wanted to write something, but we weren't sure what. We we're like, we want to write something. We want to work on a project together. And we hadn't really worked together too much at that point. And we knew it would be like our social life as well. Like it'd be a it would be fun for us. So yeah, that's I mean, that's the long answer of like why we started it. So it was Austin versus Bronte, Bonnets of Dawn. Hannah was team Austin. I was team Bronte. And basically, we were comparing and contrasting the lives and the works of Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. And then we were like, oh, there's all these other women writers that we yeah. we want to talk about. And so then we just dropped Austin versus Bronte. And we've just kind of gone all over the map, honestly.
1: The season that I listened to, you touched upon 18th and 19th century African-American authors. Mm-hmm including the text called The Woman of Color.
2: Yeah, Sarah Farrow. She's, Sarah oh, Farrow. She's yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So
1: I, I just dug a little deeper and did some research. And there's a lot of Black Victorian type authors mm-hmm. that we don't hear about at all. And that's what drew me to your podcast, really. Um, can you talk a little bit about it so that people
2: understand? Yeah, so we were doing all of these authors. We're doing like, mm-hmm. you know, George Eliot and the Bronte sisters and Elizabeth yeah. Gaskell, all these people that you've heard about. Yeah. And people kept saying to us, well, there are, you know, there are no black writers or there are mm-hmm. no Asian writers. And yeah. we were like, oh, no, they there are. Yeah. And then we really had to stop ourselves and go like, wait, okay, who are they? We need mm-hmm. to give them more attention. This show yeah. is You know, I'm a Black woman, but this show Mm -hmm. is far too white, honestly, is where, you know, (laughs) is what we, the decision that we came to. And we started doing some digging. And I will say, though, a lot of those authors are harder to find, Mm -hmm. right? Sadly. And a lot of those authors, we did an episode on Pauline Hopkins Mm -hmm. last year, who was an African-American editor and playwright and prolific writer and a fantastic writer she wrote this amazing book called Contending Forces and I feel like it should be required reading in school and it's not it's basically out of print unfortunately
1: uh, there's a lot of required reading at you know at the
2: schools that shouldn't really be
1: required reading I know <laughs> you know what I'm saying like I feel like I have a lot of feelings about
2: Walden. I have a lot of feelings about it.
1: (laughs) We need to revise what's required reading at this moment. It's a lot of, it's a lot of white authors, and a lot of white stories, to be honest. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't reflect, it doesn't, I mean, you're sitting in a high school classroom with people that are of different cultures, different backgrounds, but they're forced to read a history that is not reflected of their own or Mm -hmm. a history that, maybe at a point of time that kind of oppressed their own culture or their own yeah. people or it's kind of difficult so hearing about these different authors from different backgrounds is is very fascinating and why and of course they're not going to be well known because at the time they weren't given the opportunity to be you know a Jane Austen or an Elizabeth Gaskell because they were black
2: And I think too, like one thing that we've discovered is like, I mean, in the early days of the show, we were really figuring it out and really figuring Mm -hmm. out how do you contact guests and like, how do you get an expert to come on your show? And, you know, the people that are very accessible as well are the Jane Austen scholars, Mm -hmm. the Gaskell scholars that, you know, they have a big presence, they have literary homes, they have societies and support. And these authors don't. And so for a lot of these authors, Sarah E. Farrow is a great example. So Sarah Farrow, I found out about via an article that a wonderful scholar named Gretchen Gersina wrote. And she also wrote this amazing book called Black London, which I highly recommend. And I'm like, oh, Sarah E. Farrow. Okay, it's amazing. Oh, and she's from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. This is amazing. And I was like getting super excited. And I like found Sarah E. Farrow's book, which is digitized, which you can read. And it's a romance that takes place during a pandemic. And my goodness, like, oh, wow. that's a lot. <laughs> but I just couldn't find like anyone that was doing work on her. Mm I was like, is anyone doing work on her right now? Because Gretchen Grazina is also doing like a million things and like a very busy scholar. And this was kind of like a footnote for her. So I just was searching for someone and it took months and months and months. And then weirdly, I was at a Jane Austen society event and I met the speaker and we were talking. And she was like, you know, it's funny, like no one will care, but I've been doing this like research on this author named Sarah E. Farrow. And I was like, you are kidding me. (laughs) Wow. And I like almost burst into tears. And I was like, I've been looking for someone for months. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Where have you been? And she's like, oh, no one cares. Like I've been doing it. I've been trying to like talk about it. I'm like, I care. (laughs) I'm the one. So, you know, we, you know, we've since become friends. That scholar's name is, is, Lydia Craig, and I believe she's defending her dissertation this week. Anyway, so she is lovely and she actually came on the show and we we talked about Sarah E. Farrow. We're probably gonna do another episode on Sarah E. Faro because the recovery work on her is still ongoing and Lydia is still going through, like, there's a court case that's attached to Sarah's life that's fascinating, and she's still going through all the court documentation and all of that good stuff. So yeah, it's just we've we've done a poor job of preserving the legacies of marginalized writers. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that will shock no one, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I think in the first couple of years of the podcast, we were just we were doing what a lot of people were doing and we were going to what was accessible. It's mm-hmm. just and easy. Yeah. It's just easier. It's yeah. just easier. And then now I am way more interested in looking at what's not as accessible, which takes longer. So now our seasons are shorter and the work is a little bit more, but that's okay. Cause I'm actually more really engaged. Co- I, mean, and I like more it. That's more qualitative, I guess you can say. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Cause why not do something that, you know, other people are not. So I do I think it'll draw yeah. more people to, to the podcast hopefully. Fingers crossed, you Fingers know. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, it is a fascinating podcast, and I—I I mean, this is a podcast about Kentucky subjects or Kentucky uh, research. But um, I just had to mention your podcast. Thank you. One, so, yeah. Well,
2: I am heading well, to Kentucky soon for research for. Cool. We'd love to so see you. Hopefully, we will get to meet and yeah. have a discussion about them.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and taking
2: the time to meet with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at eLibrarian at LexPublib.org. That's eLibrarian at L E X P U B L I B.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.